Genesis chapter 23. Let's read this chapter. It's 20 verses. And um, there's a couple of things I want us to see here. Really mainly one, one thing that we're going to focus on in this chapter. And um, let's just start there. And then I, and then I want to talk to you kind of in relation, but I want to kind of talk about um, not really a review of everything that we've gone over, but I want to, I, I guess I want to give you a reminder about, um, about what we're doing as we go through, not just Genesis, but as we go through the Scripture, as we go through the Bible, uh, what it is that we are looking for and what it is that we should be trying to glean uh, from the scripture. Let's, uh, let's begin here, chapter 23. Just follow along in your Bibles. If you don't have one, there should be one under the chair or in front of you, um, or I think they're going to have it up on the screen for you. Genesis chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kirjith Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham came to mourn for Sarah, and to weep for her. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the sons of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke to them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, cure me. And meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is in the end of the field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of of his city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me, I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying, My Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abram, Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which, is, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver currency of the merchants. So the field of Ephron, which was in Melchpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth, before all who went in at the gate of the city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, before Mamre, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. So in the 23rd chapter here of Genesis we have the account of Sarah's death and her subsequent burial. This is the first time we see in Scripture where the dead are buried. It's the first time this, uh, this concept is brought to us uh, in the Scripture. And if you'll notice in chapter 4, when Abraham is talking to the sons of Heth, he says, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now, remember, when we read the scripture, 
what are we looking for? Well, the answer to that is we're looking for Christ. We're looking for the gospel. What is God communicating to us in this account of Sarah's death? What is he trying to show us through type and shadow that we are to glean from this? And there's really the one thing that I'm going to focus on here is the burial of Sarah. And Abraham says it this way, and I think it's very interesting, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The burial of Sarah out of the sight of Abraham is a picture of the burial that comes in the cross. It is the removal of that which is dead from the sight of God. So when we talk about the cross, it's very easy for us to just think of a cross and to think of Jesus dying on that cross. But remember, the cross is all-inclusive. So when Paul says, I I purpose to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified, my message is, is simply this. It's the cross of Christ. Paul is not just simply referring to the death of Christ. So in the cross, we have the death, we have the burial, we have the resurrection, and we have the ascension. That is the cross of Christ. If take any one of those aspects out and you don't have the cross, you don't have redemption, you don't have atonement, you don't have gospel if you take any of those out. And it's very easy for us to kind of gloss over the burial part. You know, we all understand that we must die. I mean, death, physical death is present with us uh, all the time. You know, we've got... uh, A number of families, four families in this church right now who just recently experienced the death of loved ones. And they're struggling and they're grappling with this reality of death and the separation that death brings. And so we know that the Bible teaches us, Jesus taught us, don't fear physical death. And and he can say that because he conquered death. We serve a risen Savior. We don't serve a dead Savior. We serve a living, a risen Savior. Jesus conquered death. We, we have no reason to fear death, yet death still is a fearful thing. I mean, we would be lying if we said that it wasn't. I remember when Cindy, before she passed, she said, you know, I'm not really afraid of dying. I'm afraid of getting there. And, and I guess that's really, you know, part of it. Uh, as believers, we know uh, we know that death has no hold of us. It's, it's the journey. It's the transition. What's that journey going to be like? What is that transition going to be like? And so uh, when we think about the cross and we think about being crucified with Christ, we can't think of that apart from being buried with Christ. And our burial is very important. And so Abraham says... Give me this place so that I may bury my dead out of my sight. He said that in verse 4. He said that again in verse 8. That I may bury my dead out of my sight. Paul writes this in his letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 10. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, I quote this scripture, I talk about this scripture quite frequently because I think it's very important. It's, it's the scripture in 2 Corinthians 4, uh, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, where it says, we know no man any longer according to the flesh. And then verse 17, we quote quite often. We often know verse 17 without knowing what verse 16 says. Verse 17 begins like this, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The oldest passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What's the therefore? Therefore, therefore, if any man be in Christ. The therefore is saying, we know no man according to the flesh. God doesn't relate to us according to the flesh any longer. Now, I'm not talking about, I'm not saying this body is not reality. I'm saying this flesh, the Bible says this flesh is sinful. There's a reason why we must experience death. Flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. One way or another, this flesh is going to be changed. God's not going to make it new and improved. He's going to kill it. He's going to put it away. And he's going to give us something new. 
2 Corinthians 5, 17, when it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. That, that speaks of not the old made better. It speaks of the old being put away and something brand new being brought forth. You become in Christ a new creation. Well, what happened to the old? The Bible says the old has passed away. Well, where is it? It's dead and it's buried. God has put it out of his sight. This is what we see. Abraham is burying Sarah that I may bury my dead out of my sight. This is God, again, painting with shadows while holding the substance in view. Abraham putting his dad out of his sight is communicating. It's pointing us to the day when Christ shall be crucified and buried. And we are called to be crucified with Christ and to be buried with Christ so that our old dead man can be put away out of the sight of God because God does not relate to the old dead man. So you think about the law, uh, the Mosaic law, very strict laws and regulations concerning the dead. If you touched something dead, it didn't matter whether it was on purpose or by accident. If you touched something dead, you became unclean. The living were not to have fellowship, relationship with the dead. Why? And so, you know, people say, well, that God was, whether they knew it or not, God was teaching them good hygiene practices. This is you know, so they wouldn't get disease and sickness because, you know, they were too stupid to know any better. So God had to give them all these rules and regulations. Really, that's just the height of pride and arrogance. This is what evolution has done to us. Evolution says that man has been stupid and we're getting smarter and smarter. Now, listen, the reality is that there might be good hygiene practice in that, but it wasn't for good hygiene that God told them that. God was teaching them something. God was pointing them to Christ. God was teaching them that God does not relate to that which is dead. What does he do with it? He puts it out of his sight. And so this is the picture. God no longer relates to us according to the flesh or according to our sinful old man. If anyone is in Christ, they become a new creation. The old passed away. Behold, all things have become new. When Paul writes in in his letter to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ, there is an implicit understanding of what's happened to him. If we get crucified, we die. And it's no longer I who live. What happened to that dead man? He got put away out of sight. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now the Father relates to me, not through my old man, not through my flesh, but through Christ by the life of the Spirit, by making me a new creation and causing the old to pass away, that all things become new. Now, verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 5, now all things are of God. So this picture that when we're crucified with Christ, Our old man is buried and taken out of the Lord's sight. God does not see the old man that was crucified with Christ. He knows only the new man raised up in the resurrection life of Christ. This whole, the whole, the whole concept of justification by faith. This is why we understand what Paul is teaching that Paul is not writing Paul and the other writers of Scripture are not writing Scripture to give us greater weapons and greater opportunities to live better lives so that we can work our way to heaven. We're not working our way to justification. We're not, justifica- we're not justified by works of righteousness. We're justified by faith. And so the point of Jesus dying on the cross is so that we could also die on the cross. The point of Jesus being buried and put away, his physical body being buried and put away, was so that our old man could be buried and put away. The point of Jesus being resurrected is so that we could be resurrected, not in our life, but in his life. That the life of Christ, the one life of Christ, can now inhabit many members and manifest in many throughout the creation. 
And so the problem is not that the old man is not removed from the Lord's sight. The problem is that the old man has not been removed from our heart and our mind. So if you, Christian, have been truly born again, and you are a new creation, the problem is not that God is still looking at your old sinful flesh and your old sinful man. The problem is that old man has not been removed from your heart and your mind, and you're still manifesting the remnant of that in the way you think and in the way you walk. Well, how are you going to change the way you walk? You're going to change the way you walk by changing the way you think. No one walks somewhere without first thinking about where they're going to go. You don't walk and then think. You think and then you walk. You you have something in your mind that causes you to walk a certain way, to do certain things. What's going to cause you to walk in a different way, to walk in a different manner? What's going to change that is what's up here. And what's going to change what's up here is what's happened here in your heart. When you're born again, when God gives you a new heart, when God gives you the mind of Christ, now you are to renew your heart and your mind according to that new. So the problem is that we still have the old man in our heart and in our mind. We have a hard time removing from our heart what God has already removed from his sight. The process of spiritual maturity that we call discipleship is simply the process of removing the old man from our heart and mind so that we conform to the reality of the new man in the new creation in Christ. The fruit of this process is that we walk as children of light, that we walk in the spirit and no longer fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's why saying, I believe in Jesus, therefore I'm okay. Well, that that may be true. But without a change, without something changing in your life, We've got to call that into question, not because we're saved by the things that change, but because if we are truly saved, something truly is going to change. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, Jesus said it this way, you'll know a tree by its fruit. Or we could say it like this, the root determines the fruit. We could say the fruit determines the root. Paul, in his writings, looks at a tree from the point of view of of a root and says if the root is right, if it's got the true root, the good root, if Christ is the root, you're justified. There is just a, it's it's just implied the fruit's going to come. James looks at, from a different point of view, and he says faith without works is dead. He's not saying we're saved by works. He's saying if you truly have faith, there is going to be works that will be produced out of that faith. So he looks at the tree and he says the fruit on the tree proves the root. Paul looks at the tree and he says the root will prove the fruit. Paul looks at the tree and says the root's going to determine the fruit to come. And James looked at the tree and he says the root proves that it's of the true root. They're both looking at the same thing. They're talking about the same thing. They're just looking at it from different perspectives. So to say that we're justified by faith doesn't mean that we don't change. Doesn't mean that we don't walk differently. It means we must change and we must walk differently. But we need to understand that we're not saved because we walk differently. Or God's not waiting for us and he's saying, come on, you're almost there. You're almost justified. You're almost, just work a little bit harder. That's not what God is saying. So when we talk about these scriptures, for instance, when we go over to Romans chapter 6 and Paul is talking about being uh, buried with Christ. If you've been baptized with Christ, you've been Uh, baptized into his death. You've been buried with him, he says. And then verse 11 of Romans chapter 6, Paul says, 
uh, reckon yourself dead indeed to sin, but alive to God. Reckon yourself dead indeed to sin. Now, how am I dead to sin? Because, because sinful thoughts are things that can just come in a moment. Am I the only one that, is that true for? I don't know, maybe you guys just have it all down really good. But I mean, you know, I can have uh, bad thoughts about people, places, things. I mean, I can see something on TV. I can have someone do something to me or say something to me, and I can have a, a thought that that's not good. I might have an angry thought. I might have a, uh, you know, who knows, a lustful thought. I could have a greedy thought. I could have a selfish thought. I mean, all of those things are sinful, right? We're subject to that. But yet the Bible says that if I've been crucified with Christ, my old man has been put out of the sight of God. And God doesn't see that old sinful man anymore. Does that mean that I can just go and live my life and do anything I want because the old man's been put away? Absolutely not. Because God doesn't care about sin anymore because Jesus paid the price. Jesus forgives everything. I can just do whatever I want, be whoever I want, and it's all good because God is love, and he has to forgive me. He does forgive me. He loves me. He's never going to judge me. Is that true? No, that's a lie from the pit of hell. That would be like planting a, a, a peach tree, a peach seed in the ground, and expecting to get a lemon tree from it, and convincing myself that, you know, this is really a lemon tree. Or better yet, planting a seed in the ground thinking it's a fruit tree and there's no fruit at all. And I'm just deceiving myself into thinking that this, you know, it doesn't matter. The fruit's going to come one day. And if, even if it doesn't come, God's still going to accept it because, no, God won't accept it because it's the wrong kind. So you understand that our problem with God from the beginning was never about our behavior. Our problem with God from the beginning was about our kind. So when we fell in the beginning, God didn't reject us because our behavior got bad. God rejected us because when we fell, we, we became separated from him. We became the embodiment of sin and death, and we are now the wrong kind. And so we sin because we're sinners. Right? Right? Cats meow, pigs snort, and dogs bark because they are who they are. Sinners sin because they're sinners. It's our nature that separates us. What's the solution for that? The solution is to be born again with a new nature, the nature of Christ. Now, if I have been born again and Christ now lives in me, what happened to my old man? The Bible says that old man had to vacate the premises. Because God's not going to come live with the old man. So when I was crucified with Christ, who was crucified? The old man was crucified. What happened to him? He was taken down and he was buried out of God's sight. He's removed from God's sight. God now raises me up in the resurrection life and power of Jesus. Jesus now lives in me. The good seed who is Christ has been planted in the good soil of my heart that God created. And now, will that seed produce fruit in good soil? Go to the parable of the soil and the sower in Matthew 13. Go to Mark's gospel. The good seed planted in good soil will produce fruit. No question asked. It will. So when the good seeds planted in the good soil of your heart, will Christ's fruit come forth? Yes, it must. A change must take place. A change will take place. And this is the importance of understanding what it means to be buried with Christ. Not just crucified with Christ, but buried with Christ because God has really put something away from his sight. He has removed the old man and he knows you, he knows me no longer according to the old man. He does not relate to the old man. 
So we need to renew our mind to that reality that our old sinful man was crucified, buried, and removed from the Lord's sight. We must walk in the reality of the resurrection life of Christ that we have been raised up in by grace through faith in Jesus and allow that life to manifest in us as the fruit of who we now are in Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory, means Christ manifests through you to reveal that hope to the world around you. So now in Christ, we no longer live. We no longer live in or relate to the old man of death. We have buried the old man in the cross and put on Christ and a new man in a new creation in the spirit. So Abraham wanting to bury his dead out of his sight, points us to this reality of the cross that we have not only been crucified with Christ, but we have been buried with him, that God has put out of his sight that old man of sin, and he has raised us up in new life in the Son. Now we must renew our mind to that reality so that our lives will manifest that life that our lives will manifest the fruit of that reality doesn't mean you won't struggle, doesn't mean that. But it means there will really be something different about you. There must be. We're not called to water down the gospel and the message of the gospel to try to make it more inclusive of people. The gospel is the gospel. And it will either change us or it will not. And it won't change us because I can make it change you because I can't make anything change you. No man, no woman, no person can change you. We want to believe that. This is why we run to people. This is why we look to people. This is why people become codependent upon other people because they they think they're going to get what they need from this person. No. We all need one another. We are all, in a sense, dependent upon one another because we are the body of Christ. God made us that way. But ultimately, the only one who has the power to change us is God. The only thing that has the power to change us is the gospel. That's not trying to make the gospel more inclusive to to attract broader groups of people. It is trusting that when we proclaim the gospel in its entirety, in its purest form, that it will have the power to change a heart. That it can break a hard heart and create a new heart. A heart of flesh, a heart that is open and desiring of God. The gospel does that. So this kind of brings me to what I wanted to talk to you about just kind of in a general sense. So, you know, we looked at Sarah and Abraham bearing Sarah. We looked last week at this story of Abraham taking Isaac up to the mountain. And you know, that story in, in, in Genesis 22 of Abraham taking Isaac up to the mountain and Isaac carrying the wood on his back and and uh, the sacrifice and, and all of that, that's a pretty easy picture of Christ to see. You know, that's a type and a shadow that's real easy to see. Uh, but here's the reality. These types and shadows are throughout all of Scripture. I mean, I, I think we can find them on every page of Scripture. And so when we read the Bible, we're to read the Bible with a man in view. But we need to make sure that we're reading the Bible with the right man in view and not the wrong man. The man we hold in view when we read the scripture is to be Christ, not ourself. Now, we have, we live in a time, and this has been going on now for uh, at least, you know, a century or more, but but for a good, um, for a good century, uh, 
that we've kind of taken the Bible and we've shifted the focus of the Bible away from Christ and we put it onto man. And now the Bible has become all about us. Jesus is your personal savior, but, but we've taken that to such an extreme that Jesus now is my personal Jesus. He's my, you know, he's the guy that does everything for me. He's, he's Jesus who's here to meet all my needs and to give me all my wants and all my desires. And it, it, we've made Jesus so personal, we've excluded him from the world almost. And in making Jesus so personal, we've come to believe somehow that everything in the Bible is about us. So we start reading the Bible in ways that, that, that it applies to us. So Jehovah Jireh now is my personal provider. And we name and we claim all kinds of things because he is Jehovah Jireh. But if we read the scripture really closely, we'll see that it wasn't God will provide for you or me. It's that God will provide for himself. What? Not a car, not a house, not... I'm not saying God doesn't provide those things. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm saying the point of the Bible revealing to us Jehovah Jireh had nothing to do with our cars and our houses and our salaries. The point of the Bible revealing Jehovah Jireh to us was that exactly what the scripture teaches us. God will provide for himself a sacrifice. What God has provided that is so much greater than cars and houses and salaries and and possessions of this world and worldly happiness is that he has provided a sacrifice that has atoned for our sins and given us eternal life, the hope of life beyond death. And the reality is God didn't do that for us. God did that for himself. That's the first thing you need to realize. God did not provide for us. The Bible says God will provide for himself a sacrifice. In the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What shall be provided? A sacrifice for himself. I want you to, I want you to listen. I want you to follow me closely. Because there's a lot of people, I meet them all the time, there are a lot of people who have fallen by the wayside of Christianity because they, for whatever reason, have come to believe that that God exists to do their bidding. And when God does not do their bidding the way that they think God should, they just kind of toss God away. And they toss Christianity away. You know why they've come to believe that? Because they've come to believe a lie. And you know why they've come to believe that lie? Because the church in very large part over the last century has reinforced this lie to its people. Today, this Sunday, today, all over America, there are men and women standing in pulpits preaching a gospel that's not really a gospel who are convincing people that God exists to bless them, to give them all of this stuff, that Jehovah Jireh didn't have anything to do with God. It has everything to do with us. And that's all fine and good as long as life goes the way you want it to. But the, day, the, the, the moment that life doesn't go the way you want it to, and your course, your, you know, whatever car you're driving veers off the road and crashes and burns, and you realize, uh, hey, where is God in all of this? I thought he was my Jehovah Jireh. I thought I could just name that name and God is like a magic formula. Christianity is not witchcraft. It's not manipulation of God. I hope you're hearing me, church. When we read the scripture, if we're not seeing Christ, we may be looking for the wrong thing. We've been... Addition to read the Bible, looking for how it applies to us. The Bible was not given to us simply for personal application, though it has great personal application. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus has great personal application to your life? He absolutely does. But that's not why the Bible was given to you, just so you can have some personal application. The Bible was given to us so that we could see Christ The Bible's not a book that teaches us how to live. Listen to me. 
The Bible is a book that reveals the one who is our life. Do you hear the difference? The Bible is not a book that teaches us how to live. The Bible is a book that reveals the one who is our life. Christ did not come to show us a way of life. Christ is the way and he is the life. The B-I-B-L-E is not basic instruction before leaving earth. That's really cute, but it's really wrong. That's not what the Bible is. Listen, I used to sing that to my kids all the time growing up. The B-I-B-L-E. Well, that's fine. And and, and then, you know, this basic instruction, you know, that, that was ingrained in me. And I realized that... That is so, look, this is not my instruction book. That's not what the Bible is. That's not what it is. Though it does instruct us, right? That's not the point of why God gave us the scripture. The Bible is the inspired word of God given to reveal to us the one who is the living word. The one who is our life. The scripture says Christ is our life. The point of the scripture is to reveal to you, believer, Christ is your life. There is life in no other. The Bible is inspired by the Spirit to reveal by the Spirit the one who is Christ, the life who is Christ. That one life, Christ, is now being manifest in a corporate body that is filling the earth. Christ is the head of his body that the Bible calls the fullness of him who fills all in all, Ephesians 2, 23. The point of Jesus' death was not just so that we could all go to heaven and have a big party one day. I know that's what we want to believe. That's not the point of Jesus' death. The point of Jesus' death is very specific. It is so that that seed could fall to the ground and die And through the death of that seed and in the raising up of that seed, that one life, the one life of Christ, would now inhabit, would now possess many members and be manifest throughout creation. Christ is the fullness that is filling all things. Christ is the man that is to be seen And revealed through every page of the scripture. Listen, the Bible is for us, but it's not about us. Salvation is for us, but it's not about us. You hear that? Jesus' death on the cross was for us, but it was not about us. It was about him. God will provide for himself a sacrifice. It didn't say God will provide for Jeff a sacrifice or Joe a sacrifice or Jim a sacrifice or Sally or Susie a sacrifice. It says he will provide for himself a sacrifice. Have I benefited from the sacrifice that God provided for himself? You better believe I have. But God didn't provide it for me. He provided it for himself. Because The reason God wants me to be raised up in resurrection life is so that Christ can be manifest in me and through me. Because the whole point of creation, the whole point of redemption is so that the glory of the Son would be manifest and fill the created order. Now, we want to think that it's all about us, but it's not. God will not care how big our churches were or how small our churches were one day when we get to glory. He's not going to care how, how far-reaching and how widespread our ministry went and our names were known. We're not going to have great and famous people with big mansions up in heaven. We have this wacky mentality that we're going to have this social status, this social class in heaven that all the rich and famous televangelists who've reached so many people you know, as if, you know, now it's all the guys now that are on satellite TV. You, you hear them talk about the great mansions they're going to have in heaven. And then you'll hear someone say something like this. Now, look, don't, you know, they'll look into the TV camera and they say, look, 
Even if you don't have a mansion in glory one day, you might just have a little log cabin by a lake, but you're going to be happy. You're not going to be sad that you're not living in the big mansion up on the hill. I mean, we have, that is just, can I just, that is just, that's retarded. That's just dumb. This is what we've turned the gospel into. We've turned the gospel into this thing that has become all about us. And it was never, ever, ever, ever about us. It has always, always, always been about him. And until you begin to realize that your salvation is not about you, it's about God, then you'll get over yourself. And you'll get over being upset with God because God didn't do what you wanted him to do or your parents or your friends or your boss or your boyfriend or girlfriend or husband and wife didn't do what, they, what you wanted them to do. And, and God, can't you make them do the right thing? No, listen, it's not about that. You exist for him. He does not exist for you. God does not exist for me. I exist for God. God did not create me so that he could become my whatever. God created me to exist for him. He didn't create me so that he could exist for me. Christ is the fullness that is filling all. The eternal purpose of God involves us and we benefit infinitely more than we could ever know. But it's not about us. It is about Christ. The Father has done all and works all by the Spirit for the glory that is revealed in His Son. It has never been about us. It has always been and always will be about Christ and the glory of the Father. All things, and I mean all things, are ultimately for and about Him. Christ is the image and the glory that is filling all in all, filling the earth, covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. Christ is the glory of the Father made flesh and now made known to us and manifest through us by the Holy Spirit. What man is in view... What man is in view when you read the scripture? Now, you think right now, as you read the Bible, what man do you hold in view? I'll, I'll tell you, very often, I'm reading the Bible in crisis mode. Trying to find an answer for this, trying to find an answer for that. Trying to figure out this, trying to figure out that. Or, as pastors are very common, uh, we, we tend to read the Bible for sermon preparation. Listen, if, if the only time I'm reading the Scripture, if, if all I'm looking for is a good sermon, if all I'm looking for is, is an answer to my 911 call, I'm in desperation mode, so now I'm going to turn to the Scripture, but then my desperate times are over with, and I just go back to... But when you realize that Christ is the center of everything, that God has done everything for the glory of his son, that God has done everything to manifest the life of his son, even down to creating you and I and everything in this world, he has done it for the glory of his son. And we benefit from it, but we were not the ones he had in mind when he did it. Do you see Christ when you read the scripture or are you trying to find yourself? I used to read the, I used to spend a lot of time reading the Bible, trying to find myself. Lord, what's my purpose? Lord, why am I here? What, you know, what's my place in the cosmic scheme of life? I'll tell you what our place is. Our place is to exist for his glory. Now, this may be real simple, but maybe we need some simplicity in the way we think about life. I really don't think my dogs 
or the birds or the bugs or the squirrels or the rabbits or anything else, the flowers and the trees. I don't think they get up every morning and they wonder what their cosmic purpose is. I don't think they get up every morning trying to figure out exactly what they're supposed to do that day. Somehow they just live life and and it all works. Now I'm not saying don't live with purpose. I'm not saying don't be good stewards. I'm not saying don't plan and and don't, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. But sometimes I think we need to really take the words of Jesus at face value when he says don't worry about your life. Look at the created order, how God takes care of them. Are you not more valuable than those things? That doesn't mean we can't, that does not mean we can just sit on the couch and channel surf all day and God's going to just provide for us. I don't know how God's going to provide for you. I just know that he will provide for you. I don't know how God's going to lead and direct specifically your life. I just know that he's going to lead and direct your life. I don't know what specific plans and purposes God has for your life, but I know God has a plan and a purpose for your life. And what we all need to understand is is whatever that is and however it looks like, it's not for us, it's for him. You exist for him. He's leading and guiding you for his purpose, not your own. Are you okay with that? Am I okay with that? Here's the reality. We, we better be okay with it because that's, that's the way it is. Do we trust him enough that his purpose, that his glory is a good enough reason for him to do what he wants to do with our life? Do we trust him enough to say, okay, God, the good, the bad, and the ugly of it, I trust you. I don't understand Don't even see how this is all going to work out for good, but I know what your word says. Do you trust him, though? Do you trust him? That what he has provided for himself, what he is doing for his own glory, will be our ultimate and best good, better than anything we could cook up for ourselves, better than anything we could plan for ourselves, better than anything we could arrange for ourselves. Do you trust in that God? Because that is the God of creation. That is the God of redemption. And God loves you enough, I believe, to work in your life and through your life to bring you to that place of trusting him. And that might be a difficult process. That might be a hard process. Or would you rather God just leave you alone? I promise you would, you would not want God to just leave you alone. You don't want that. Because if God just left you alone, it would mean that he does not love you. Father who corrects his children, corrects them because he loves them. Find the man. Find Christ. Find the Son of the living God on the pages of His living Word. And you will not only find yourself, you will find life, you'll find hope, joy, and you'll find love that never fail. You'll find the glory of the Father bound up in all of His eternal purpose, made known and revealed to us by His Spirit in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop reading the Bible to find yourself. Look into God's Word to find God's Son, And let the truth set you free. The Bible is not your instruction book. It is a window to see Christ. Stop trying to understand the instructions and begin to look through the window and see Jesus. And let the revelation of Jesus that the Spirit of God brings to you, let that revelation of Christ begin to break away those things that hold you and bind you. Let those things begin to fall away. Let Christ set you free. Be free to live for him. Be free to exist for
for Him and His glory. Find your life in Him. Not just a way of life, but find life. Christ is our life. So here's my challenge, that you pick up the Bible, that you read it with fresh eyes. That you just pray and just ask God to give you that. Just say, God, give me fresh eyes as I read the scripture. Give me eyes to see Jesus. Let this book be a window that I look through and see a revelation of the Son of God in all of his glory. Look for and find Christ on every page. Ask the Spirit of God to not only reveal Christ to you, but manifest his life through you. Do not let Christianity be a spectator sport. Live it, breathe it, consume it, manifest that life as you seek the face of Christ in the pages of his holy book, inspired and revealed by his Holy Spirit. Let's all stand. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see Christ. God, give us eyes to see the Son of the living God, the object of your glory, the object of your eternal purpose. Forgive us for making your word about us. Give us eyes to see and the ears to hear what the Spirit is speaking to the church through the pages of your holy word, the scripture. Open our eyes and reveal to us this window through which you have chosen to reveal the face of your son. And as we gaze into that face, God, let it change us. Let it conform us to the very same image we behold. Let it do this, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.